Blog Talk Radio. Breaking down who we are. 
And I played that today for the beginning of Our Own Voices Live because so many say that we need to have more education about who we are for ourselves as well as who we are for others so maybe we can be treated as who we really are versus how people may perceive us. As I say, welcome to Our Own Voices Live. Coming on the air just a little bit late today. Normally, Our Own Voices Live comes to you every Saturday at 12.30 p.m. on the West Coast. That's 3.30 p.m. for those of you back east. Lots of things going on in the news this week. We went from from unrest that can go by different names depending on what your position is for some It was an uprising. For others, it was rioting. Uh, So I just called it unrest because that is one thing we know for sure, all brought about because of what we're now finding, the illegal arrest leading to the death of a young black man. Yes, another one, Freddie Gray. So today on our, our show, Our Own Voices Live, we're going to talk about that, but we're also going to talk about some other things. Our main topic will be Freddie Gray, Baltimore unrest, a mom and her son. And I titled it Mom and Her Son because some people see it as a mom abusing her son, somehow effeminating her son, but other people see it as a mom rescuing her son and some people have even held her as mom of the year. What's your opinions on that? And then we're going to do a, we're also going to have a recap of the second annual Las Vegas Black Film Festival. Uh, what a beautiful event. I wish you all could have attended. There was quite a bit of attendance there, but it was such a great opportunity for so many. And I'm glad that I was a part of seeing it and chronicling it and being able to bring some of that experience back to you. Uh, May, which is we are in May, this is May 2nd, is Asian American and Pacific Islanders Heritage Month. And you may be surprised to find out what different groups comprise that and what really this particular observation Uh, observance is based on. So uh, you can find that in the Facebook page, Our Own Voices Live. And uh, this reminds me of a a lecture I did for Black History Month, and people wanted to know what made black people so special that they needed their own month. And I shared with them that other people had a month. And then one of the retorts was, well, what about Arab Americans? And I said, yes, they have a month too. And April just happens to be African American Heritage Month, and now we're in May, which is Asian American Heritage Month. As we get further into the month, we will uh, talk about that and some of that, some of the Asian American uh, experience as it runs deep in this country. Uh, a little bit about Our Own Voices Live. Our Own Voices Live is a radio show featuring people and stories from our community in Las Vegas, the surrounding area, and someplace near you. Our mission is to bridge. Our mission is uh, to bridge the cultural divide, an ethnic divide in America, 
by working together to build the greatest bridge in history to unite us. And one way that we do it is with shows like Our Own Voices Live. We're also part of the Speak Up Network. Brother Lee Vaughn has real radio, radio established to address life, and he brings it to you from a slightly younger and hipper perspective. We also have Brother Thomas Berry, hailing from the Twin Cities, who has Rant Radio, a broadcast on Tuesday in Central Time, and I believe that's at uh, uh, 5 o'clock. And we have, of course, Sister Angela Thomas that has Needle on the Record. Thursday's West Coast Time is, I believe, at 6.30. So it's sort of our collaboration to try to bring you information that maybe you may not hear someplace else. If nothing else, to give you a chance to share in your opinion of whatever it is that we're talking about. Uh, We do other things. We do events. We go cover events. Uh, we have our own events that we do, as I mentioned earlier, at the annual Ribbon Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. event. Uh, next week, and I'm going to give you guys this heads up early. Next week, we're going to, if everything goes well, we're going to chat with Sister China Hudson about her recent trip to the motherland, to the continent, to Asia, her experience there, things she learned, things maybe she had not known or maybe it was misinformation. Now, she's going to share that experience with us next week. Such a gracious sister. She was actually going to be on today, but she thought that be more, that's what the folks there sometimes call them, call it Baltimore, that that story was more important, and she suggested that she come on next week. Big shout-out to you, sister, for being such an encourager and understanding. Uh, And and the reason why I say that is sometimes, I'll admit, I get so busy doing so many different things, trying to go where people ask me to go, sometimes tell me to go, that I don't always get it right. And sometimes I miss miss some things or sometimes I'm a little late for things. But if you're late for one, then that typically has a domino effect that makes you later for others. And uh, Sister China, she, she came to me before I went to her and said, Brother, I know you must be right. So let's. We can do this next week. Do your thing and cover Baltimore. So I'm going to cover Baltimore today, and I hope that you will cover it with me. Uh, you can give us a call at area code 347-826-9600, 347-826-9600. Press option one if you would like to talk. That gives me an indication to make your mic hot as we can go over uh, some of these things. As always, like I said, there are a lot of things in the news but there's probably no greater story that's been in the news in locally than the unrest that we have had in uh, Baltimore. Uh, there's also a huge earthquake in Nepal and even affected, and I believe there were some deaths with some people who were scaling Mount Everest. And I want to give uh, uh, condolences to all of those who lost uh, family members doing that. Uh, and send our prayers for those who were hurt. And sometimes, even though there may not be physical pain, and a person didn't lose their life, there is the pain of the loved ones who left behind, of those who did lose their lives. And then for those who are hurt and lives were changed in ways that they could never have conceived of, and they go on to live, someone has to take care of them, and they have to take care of themselves. And sometimes, though they may have physical injuries, they have other injuries that are often unseen but impact them. And then for the caregivers, yes, the caregivers, who sometimes may look strong and then, of course, sometimes may look weak. 
it is a feat to be able to care for someone who's had injuries that maybe just 10 or 20 years ago they would not have survived from. So we do want to recognize the tragedy that happened in Nepal this week. And there's also a big earthquake in New Guinea. Uh, I, I get these notifications on my cell phone when they happen. And when I saw that 7.1 in Nepal, I, I remember I was with a group of people and I, you know, they were, they were talking. I didn't want to disturb them, but I did take the time to point out that this had happened and not knowing what the impact of it would be, but knew that it wouldn't be anything good and that there would be devastation. And sure enough, there was. So again, condolences for all of those who've lost loved ones uh, in the Nepal quake and the New Guinea quake that just recently happened. And for those who were attempting to scale Mount Everest. Uh, just to recap, what we're going to talk about today is we, I do want to give a sort of a recap and an overview of the second annual Las Vegas Black Film Festival. And the reason for that is because I think it is something worthy of note. It is something that we should take note of. It was an endeavor, a vision, a dream that didn't just stay in someone's head and that someone being Miss Michelle, but actually brought it to fruition. Uh, I have a lot of respect for her following her vision. And when we did her interview, one of the things she talked about was knowing her purpose and having a purpose and then going out the business of fulfilling that purpose. She was so full of smiles during the film festival, and she also had some tears, but they were tears of joy. During the film festival, not only did she honor those people whose films won in various categories, but she also took time to honor someone who many of you may know, and that's uh, actor Louis Gossett Jr., and uh, he actually did show up. He, he came. And the reason why I say it like that is because, you know, we're Las Vegas, and some may not see us in that light, but he did. He took the time out of his life, out of his schedule. You know, he just had the Book of Negroes on, uh, I believe it was PBS, at least PBS locally, which is something that I had uh, Sam Smith and some others of I had talked about at the gathering, but most people had no idea what it was. And Lou Gossett put that in film and uh, presented it so that we could all see. It is an integral part of our history, though it may not show some of us, some of those that we have learned about in history, in that positive light, as in George Washington, the founding father, who uh, didn't want the, the Revolutionary War uh, to end until he had went out and recaptured all of the slaves who with the promise from the uh, English, the British, that if they fought on their side, that they would have their freedom. George Washington, after defeating uh, the British, wanted those slaves back. And the British, had big props uh, to the British, they held out, established some protocols to try to get those slaves who fought for them the freedom that they had promised. It's uh, actually one reason why we have so many blacks in, in Nova Scotia. Uh, some of did go back to actually did go back to Africa, and then there was some that went to the Caribbean. But the cataloging of those people is really where we get the title, the Book of Negroes, because they had to be described in such detail uh, under many under some accounts, the most detailed description of Africans of slaves ever. Also, George Washington could bring those 
what he called escaped slaves back to their slave owners. So Lou Gossett uh, received a Lifetime Achievement Award as presented to him on behalf of the Las Vegas Black Film Festival and also by the founder, the visionary, Miss Michelle Pink. A uh, big shout out to them, to the Las Vegas Black Film Festival. Uh, had so many workshops there, uh, almost like a day long of workshops. And, and acting is really not m- my thing, even though I wish I could. But uh, I, I do understand the impact of, that those workshops had, the impact of those people who had a vision, as Miss Michelle had a vision, to get their works on the big screen. You know, we can do a lot of video and put it on the Internet, which is fine. Uh, sometimes you go straight to DVD if they're fortunate. But when you can actually see your work on the big screen, wow. And and as I was sitting there watching the film, I'm thinking this is somebody who had a vision, and now they're seeing their vision, their dream, come to fruition. For those who thought, eh, well, it's just movies, it's just films, it is so much more than that. Uh, there were some young ladies, well, that. There were, I think, teenagers who designed and stitched the orange carpet gown for LaDonna, Miss Michelle's assistant. Beautiful gown, looked beautiful on her. And the fact that these were teens, now they may not have had the opportunity to showcase that had it not been for the Las Vegas Black Film Festival. Again, big shout out to Miss Michelle for not just doing this where she's in the spotlight but making sure that others get some spotlight, get some airtime. Those young, uh, those, those girls being able to showcase their sewing ability, their design ability, and then having to speak on the red carpet. That was an education and an experience uh, all in itself, having to speak on the red carpet. And then for all the actors, all of the behind-the-scenes people, you know, we're not just talking cast members. We're talking, you know, there they were they talked about the lighting of the films, the audio of the films. I mean, it was just, the, you know, so many different categories. I thought it was just wonderful. And if you guys don't have a black film festival where you are and that's what you're into, you know people who are in it, have the vision because you have to be able to see it in your mind's eye first. Write about it. Talk about it and then go about the work of being about it to make it happen. It can open up doors not only for yourself, but for so many others. I took tons of pictures. I am super tardy into giving those pictures to Ms. Michelle. I did get some, and uh, I have the rest. So hopefully you all will be able to see those and the others that were taken and some of the videos that were taken. I took videos there. I will try to get those things up as soon as I can. Please bear with me. But you can go to the website. You can also go to the Facebook page, Second F Annual Las Vegas Black Film Festival, and sort of take in what you may have missed. And for those of you who attended, take it in and extend your experience of the event. And then as soon as the tickets are up for the, the third annual Las Vegas Black Film Festival, go and sign up early. And get the big package so you can take in as much as you can. But I know everybody's money may not allow them to do that. Find the areas that are interesting and or important to you and try to be a part of it. And if it's not your thing but you know some young people who might benefit from it, then maybe you can share your ticket with them 
And it's not always young people. Sometimes it's uh, more mature people as well. So this is a great opportunity where you can show your philanthropic side or just take it all in for yourself or a combination of the two. Again, go to the second annual Las Vegas Black Film Festival Facebook page, uh, Las Vegas Black Film Festival uh, website, and do a Google search for it if you don't find it right away, and take in all that was there and leave some comments and ask them questions. One of the things about Ms. Michelle is she likes to share, she likes to teach, she likes to provide opportunities for folks. Be a part of that. Uh, maybe you can spread that around. It's like being a farmer, planting seeds. Well, she got a chance to see her seeds blossom with the second annual Las Vegas Black Film Festival. So thank you so much for uh, listening to to that. I that that was a joyous occasion. It really was for many reasons. The second part of our show today is about something less joyous, and that is the young man, Freddie Gray. And after a brief station break, we're going to get into that conversation. You are listening to Our Own Voices Live. Our Own Voices Live comes to you every Saturday at 12.30 p.m. on the West Coast. That's 3.30 p.m. for those of you back east. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us. Today's topic is a recap of the second annual Las Vegas Black Film Festival, which was at the top of our show. And the second part of our show that we're moving in now is the incident involving Freddie Gray that, as we were told, has led to his death after being falsely arrested. And we'll get into that falsely arrested part. We also want to talk about the unrest in Baltimore, and we want to talk about the mom and her son, who many have seen it as a good thing, and some didn't. Uh, Some have hailed her as mom of the year, and others have seen her as a villain. We're going to talk about that. Can they both be right? And I want to spend some time to talk about where do we go from here? When these things happen, there's a lot of energy associated with it. But now that it's over, where do we go from here? I also want to remind everyone that May is Asian American and Pacific Islanders Heritage Month. So this gives us an opportunity to learn about those Americans who represent that group and see how and what their contributions have been to make this great country of ours that we call America. As all of you know, this show cannot take place by myself alone. I do have plenty of help, and in this case, it comes from Mrs. Angela Thomas, who had the vision, and now it is in full effect with over 100,000 listeners. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome my co-host, Mrs. Angela Thomas. Hey, hey, Rodney. Hey, everybody. Hey, Angela. Woo, what a weekend. What a week. I am whipped, and it's still going. We are in the midst of the uh, boxing throwdown of the century, Pacquiao and Mayweather, better hashtag uh, uh, known as the hashtag Maypac. Deal with that. 
Uh, the city is on fire. We have five million of our closest friends and relatives visiting us, Rodney, and I'm feeling the pressure. I don't know if you've been out. Well, you had your. You, we we had the event last night. I mean, I think everything in the city has been um, experiencing this boxing match. Uh, yes, it's hitting us in every capacity. Uh, big shout out to the limousine ri- drivers out there, the taxi cab yes, uh, and the drivers. Uh, um, I know this is going to be a bountiful <laughs> weekend for you all. So enjoy it. Take it all in, all you party venues. Uh, this is going to be a great money maker for you. This is one of the biggest fights uh, economically that this city maybe the, the biggest fight in the yes, history of the fighting game. This is the biggest uh, media blitz. This is the largest uh, purses with the 60-40 split, uh, 60 for Mayweather, 40 for Pacquiao. The lowest check, Rodney, will be $100 million. Now, aren't you taking that phone call uh, when Mayweather call you up and say, hey, I want to hit you in the face, Um, 60-40 split. You'll leave. You'll leave this with, you know, $100 million. You know, how you feel about that? You feel good about that? All right, let's go. (laughs) I think I would take that call, $100 million? Where do I sign? (laughs) Okay. Um, so I have been, uh, I had not intended to, I'm going to be honest, this isn't the type of thing that I normally would like to cover for Needle on the Record, but I did uh, a lot of favors, you know, last year and, and this year for some, some folks that are uh, well-placed in the entertainment industry, and they have been uh, gracious enough to put some phone calls in to me and invite me out to things. So yesterday I was out way past my bedtime. I started at the Palms with Flo Rider. I drifted over to Dre's for 50 Cent's event, and I wrapped it all up with Miss Nicki Minaj at the Tropicana. I tell you, uh, I you know, I recently turned 21 again, but, you know, I'm starting to feel the, the again a little bit. I, I'm a little winded. Wow. Mm. Well, Angela, you did a heck of a lot more than me when it comes to doing that. Yeah, we did have the gathering yesterday at TC's Rib Crib, voted one of the top soul food restaurants in the nation and the only one from the city of Las Vegas, the county of Clark, the state of Nevada to make it was that on the list. list. Absolutely. So we and I hate I missed it. I hate well, I missed well, it yesterday. I had 12 I rounds of uh, let's go to the airport yesterday. It's crazy. And I, uh, it lasted me well into the evening. We also did a after work or after hours uh, gathering at CEO Hookah uh, Lounge last night. And we also did our, uh, in, in combination with that, our Friday after work uh, happy hour and cool down. And we did have some people come out. I met, and I'm talking, but you're talking about the fight. There are people, I met a brother, he's actually from New York, from the Bronx. But he traveled <laughs> all the way, he, he, he works in, and lives in Abu Dhabi now. And he wow. came here for the wow. fight. 
another brother, a fellow photographer, uh, came from, uh, he's also from the Bronx. He came out from Washington, D.C., so I got a chance to meet with some of those people. I actually had a chance to uh, fellowship sort of with some of uh, the, uh, I, I guess, some of the money team people and had a uh-huh. chance to chat with them uh, uh, last night and got some insights that were quite interesting. Uh gave yeah. me a different look at the uh, family, especially uh, Mayweather uh, Sr., uh, and uh, that was really a, a great story unto itself. So though I sure. wasn't down there sure. with Nikki and and uh, Fitty, you know what, I, Rodney? I, I got to tell you, I attended those parties. I did uh, see a lot of folks that a lot of people would know. But I got to tell you, uh, having five million of your closest friends and relatives in town is. A lot, <laughs> even for our city. I mean, any given weekend, you can find uh, pretty, pretty much whatever you want to find. A lot of excitement, a lot of uh, thrills, chills, and 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 good-looking people. But this was a a lot, even for us. It's 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 a lot. So I feel you. Well, when people ask me what. Why don't I live on the strip, just off the strip, the nearest <laughs> strip? It is days like today that I am glad that this I live weekend. where I live, where there yeah. is no impact of the strip traffic and those visitors to me. So for those of you who are out so, there, please, please so, be careful. I was at the grocery store yesterday, and um, Mayhem and Chaos decided to show up. And it it became quite disruptive at my local Smiths. I I couldn't believe that a the Smiths was that crowded, but it was crowded and and people were upset uh, about you know whatever they were upset about. I was just busy getting out of the way. I, I had done my shopping and I really had just stopped to get the kids some ice cream cones. But it's it's chaos and mayhem. <laughs> All in anticipation of tonight's big, uh, big fight of the century, featuring uh, Floyd Mayweather and Manny Pacquiao. It's been fun to see ESPN, though. I, all of the, all of my, um, what I didn't know were my favorite sports shows because my husband, you know, he's a sports guy. He he listens to Mike and Mike, and you know all the other folks. But it, it was it's it was nice to see their shows live um against the backdrop of the Las Vegas strip um uh, during the day. Mm. Well, I uh, have no intentions of going anywhere <laughs> near the strip. So for those of you who do go down there, I look forward to hearing your story after the fact. And uh, <laughs> I'm not even sure that I'm gonna watch the fight. Uh, believe it or not, I guess I might be a little bit more on the nerd side. And what yeah. I plan to do today, if I go anyplace, is I may go watch a movie. I've sort of got hooked on movies just a little bit after uh, witnessing the wonderful second annual Las Vegas Black Tell Festival. And, uh, you fell back in love I with might... cinema? That's nice. Uh, just a That's little bit. Cool. I may go see... 
the uh, this new Avengers movie that uh, that's out that started yesterday. That's, well, uh, I tell of, you, where, where I, I tell you, I I had never. I've been here ten years. I've never gone to partake in any of the festivities uh, around a boxing situation. I think the last. I, I don't know. I think Evander Holyfield. My, we were still into heavyweight champions the last time I did anything with boxing. So I, you know, I'm kind of glad I had the experience of last night just to get a a uh, firsthand experience of what it's like to be with the fans. And this particular fight is interesting, just the way that they're cover that they're that they've changed things for the first time. Um, the uh, weigh-in was a ticketed event. That's never happened in the history of boxing. Uh, And it was sold out in a matter of minutes. So uh, it's been some interesting things going on. It was nice to talk with people from, like you said, all around the world who have come uh, to Las Vegas to have this experience and they don't have ticket most of the folks that I encountered certainly you know don't have uh twenty fifteen twenty thousand dollars to plop down on a ticket or whatever the tickets are going for at this at this point um you know they didn't even have tickets to the fight they just came to Las Vegas to be a part of the vibe the parties the yeah, the 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 festivities of it all, the festiveness of it all. It was quite an experience yesterday. Uh, well, the experience continues. I <laughs> don't know who will win. Uh, one of the biggest conversations that some of my frat brothers had was, "Will there be a series of fights?" So without getting too much into the fight thing, because I'll admit I don't follow it that that closely anymore, I do have a feeling that if Mayweather loses, there will be a rematch. Oh, he's already said that. That was in the contract. That was in the contract. If he loses, he gets a rematch. If he wins, there's there's no rematch. And but I tell you this, club. Rodney, with this this uh-huh. amount of money uh, involved in this, the 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 sheer level of the payday for the city alone, I, I see this as a series. I, I don't know who's going to win. I don't even want to guess at that, but I just can't see this um, level of commerce taking place and it not happen again. Yeah, people usually don't miss too many opportunities to make money. And uh, we've seen it with so many other series of fights, whether it was Ali and Frazier, Frazier mm-hmm. and Foreman, Ali and Foreman, Ken Norton and Ali. Uh, a lot of them seem to have Ali in it. Uh, so <laughs> I would not rule out a rematch. But uh, I will mm-hmm. say this. I do believe that if Pacquiao gets knocked out, that he will retire, and that will be uh, he'll hang up his glove. Now, that's just my prediction. Again, 
playing no expertise in the fight game today. Well, that's a hell of uh, that's a hell of a hook to hang it on a hundred million dollar hook, and still counting because you know the sixty forty split only pertain to the 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 TV stuff and the tickets. We're not talking merchandise and and a few other uh, revenue streams that they have going. So it'll it'll ultimately end up being uh, over a hundred million dollar payday for both. Well over a hundred million for both. So history being made right here in our fair little city, the the dusty little western town called Las Vegas does it again. <laughs> Uh, just makes you glad to be here because we didn't have to pay to travel here. But I tell you what, if you want to go to some of those bars and uh, that uh, your normal watering hole, you may have to pay to get in there uh, to see them because they had a healthy price tag on them to just show the fight. And they're yeah. I believe it's about $4,500. Yes, uh, and, and that was something that just came about in the last two weeks because, you know, initially they were saying you could only see – the fight at MGM Properties, and with the un- with the influx of of people here, they had to open it up. But they did open it up at quite a price tag. And I heard somewhere yesterday that, you know, if you're in Mexico, you can see the fight for free. Oh, <laughs> a wow. couple of blocks up the road is 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 all free. But if you're here uh, in the United States and and in Las Vegas, uh. You don't have to shell out a chunk of change. Well, for some people, it may turn out that it would have been cheaper had they gone to Mexico. Had they gone to Mexico, you're right. (laughs) That's true, uh, because it's a it's a lot of money being spent. I talked with some of the young people. I got some uh, interviews from young people that were here to uh, experience this experience, and just asked, you know, how much did this cost you? And they enlightened me on some very uh, interesting price tags. And you say, my goodness, where does this money come? Are you eating paper and creating money? Uh, Prepaid parties. I think the lowest price I heard someone say yesterday was $200 that she prepaid, that, that the young people prepaid weeks before, and then they still had to be online and probably shell out some more money well, to get into Angela, a party you, you already actually, had a ticket to. Get <laughs> on something that we're going to talk about. I actually wrote about it and posted it on uh, the Facebook page, uh, What Do Black People Want, the Black Agenda. Uh, talk, and there was something that actually Commissioner Larry Weekly had mentioned in his radio show a couple weeks back. Of the sure. ability of people, and particularly uh, poor people, mm-hmm. but people in general, who are able to generate money for things like this, but yet our communities are falling apart. You and know, I know it some is, people you know, say it's fun and entertainment, which it is, and I don't, I you know, wouldn't take that away. But there is something called priority too. And uh, so that's that's something that we're going to try to get into uh, a little later. And and then, of course, the other side of it that he spoke about was getting that business in our communities or somehow figuring out a way to 
make income from these big events because oftentimes they will come to this city, they will leave this city, and our community will not have been impacted financially any better than beforehand. Hmm. Well, I will say this. Um, as we have had the type of week we ha- we've had with watching the um, situation with uh, Baltimore, um, it was just interesting to be down there with young people of color, productive, taxpaying uh, citizens who have left their their home cities, their jobs, their families to come here and have a you know have a little fun uh as I brought up Baltimore in, in some of the conversations and, and interviews that I I was doing with young people, you know, it it was they, they were concerned and they did highlight, you know, how honest, a lot of people felt that it was inspiring to have um Mayweather performing at this level. Um, generating this type of income and to have so many um, what they you know shared with me were African American males in the forefront of doing commerce around this event. So it was it was an interesting conversation, but a lot of people you know had a lot to say about Baltimore and uh, Fight Weekend and how. Um, interesting, kind of conflicted. Some people express feeling um, with being out here for Fight Weekend and our community going through uh, this change with these changes with Baltimore. Highlighting well, interesting. That actually provides for a great segue into the conversation because some of the reasons why we're told that there was such unrest in Baltimore is because of the financial condition uh, with over 22% unemployment from people representative of the African-American community. Uh, uh, actually, Baltimore, area. in the area where Mr. Gray um, lived, 54% unemployment. Is, is that for the general community? or is That, that was in that community, in, in the community where Mr. Gray uh, resided, 54% uh, unemployment, 52% domestic violence, uh, 56% dropout rate, high school dropout rate. You said 56%? So that means they have a 44% graduation rate, I guess is another way to look at it? I I guess, yeah. But that that other number is so huge. How can we effectively focus on the kids that are managing to make it through not only the the pressures of living in that community? I come from a very uh, I call it West Bay root. Uh, my my community where my grandmother had her home, uh, seven hundred nine North Ridgeway, in on the west side of Chicago. Uh, so. Uh, the the prejudice and 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 the the problems were so systemic. Many books have been written about uh, 
the Londale community and um, the west side of Chicago. So, you know, in my memory of coming up in that type of environment uh, and putting it with what the kids of Baltimore are um, are facing, that that's that's a lot to overcome, and you compound it with um, the industrial age coming to an end, and we're now in a technological age, and, you know, kid testified yesterday at the church, not yesterday, uh, Wednesday, they had a big, uh, attended by 2,000 uh, folks in Baltimore, but a young person got up, 12-year-old female got up and said that she her textbook was written in 1973, her current textbook. Wow. You know, we we hear about so many of those things. We hear about the unrest and one of the questions, you know, I, I titled it as unrest because some people called it uh, protest. An uprising. Some, some people, yes, uh, uprising. There's many names, and I guess it depends on your vantage point on how you see it. But there was a, there was a large-scale event of unrest, and there was some destruction of property. There was some looting. There were some other things that took place in a community that hasn't recovered since 1968. The riots of 1968. Absolutely. And now that, that was, you know, I, I communities like this community in Baltimore exist all over this country, as I, uh, you know, mentioned my community never recovered from the riots of 68. There are there there was you know total destruction. Madison and Pulaski at one point was the um it was in the top 3 uh, uh, producing shopping uh spaces in the United States. Uh, had some of the best retailers, independent as well as uh, chain and, and regional, uh, local, I'm, I'm sorry, ra- uh, regional and national chains. And that uh, two-block thoroughfare of Madison and Pulaski uh, in Chicago was in the top three producing, uh, revenue-generating uh, shopping communities. Not just black, I mean top three revenue generators in the country as far as retail was concerned for years. And um, in 68, it was wiped out. And those businesses never returned. Uh, I often talk with my parents, uh, and they, you know, they, they when they talk about when they were young and when, you know, I was born in 66, so, you know, that was, they bought a home not far from there. It was a very thriving community, and, and now you wouldn't recognize it. Uh, not only are the industrial uh, spaces gone, you had places like Sunbeam, um, uh, Hershey, um, what is General Electric. You had manufacturers like that in that community. 
you still, I mean, the big neon signs are still there. They were at least when I when I left 10 years ago, still there. Um, but those companies, those retailers never came back. So it's a lot of communities like that in this country, and I I don't I I don't think that resonated with a lot of uh, mainstream general population folks until recently, until this week, honestly. Because what's been interesting about watching Baltimore is that there the conversation that I would have with within the barber shop when I was getting my hair cut, or um, with in the in 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 Sam's um, <laughs> academy where we would all congregate and talk about things like what we heard being discussed this week on CNN and MSNBC a com- pretty common uh place for us different readings different historical references and and uh things of that nature it's been very interesting watching the coverage of of these things because it doesn't fit the narrative that uh, CNN and MSNBC need need for it to fit it it doesn't fit anywhere it does it it the people there I, you know I was saying to my husband and my daughter you know <laughs> they have asked uh, questions of you know the the locals there and I don't care if if the person looks to be homeless. I don't know if they actually were, but they have been some of the most thought-provoking, historically correct, straight-up, real-talk answers I've ever seen on American news, period. If you have missed Baltimore coverage this week, you have missed an education in American history, for real. Those people were, they, they have been so eloquent and so um, you know, there there have been some folks, some of the young people that have been very impassioned and emotional, but for the most part, Rodney, the folks that I've seen on the screen have been dealing with uh, serving the facts to every anchor, uh, Ashley Banfield, right before the district attorney made her announcement yesterday. She went on about a two-minute rant of how no big news was going to be announced. I don't know what this is, but it's not going to be anything significant, and uh, it's just not going to be anything important. Basically, she 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 did everything. She used every term except important, but it all meant that this is not going to be important news. I don't know why they're calling us here. And, you know, of course, the the state's attorney comes out and Miss um, uh, Marilyn Mosby uh, comes out and sets this whole situation <laughs> on its ear as far as uh, their coverage was concerned. Several times we've seen the narrative uh, be taken back when we when they were really beating the drum hard of uh, – Mr. Gray harmed himself in the in the truck on his own just as they were getting to the apex of pounding this into the consciousness of America somebody drops the the footage leaks the footage of additional stops as well as the young man who was on the other side of the truck uh 
coming out and refuting a Washington Post story saying that he said that this young man harmed him. He heard him over there harming himself. And, you know, this, I'm a big fan of the HBO, uh, at this point, epic historic program, The Wire. I watched it when it was originally aired on HBO. I, I recently watched the remix of it because they, uh, digitally remastered it and showed it in its entirety a, a few months ago. I said to my husband and a few other people, well, HBO has been talking for years about doing a movie, a wire, uh, the wire, to, um, the movie. And it was always kind of in the shadow of the, the success of The Sopranos. But now that, you know, The Sopranos re- movie is not a, a, a possibility without uh, Mr. Galfino. Uh, no longer being with us, I said that the wire, the movie had has all it wrote itself this week. It it, um, almost demands that HBO go back to that story because the the uh, creators of the wire really set the narrative for those of us that watched the wire. They really set the narrative up years ago for Baltimore to be at the forefront of something very serious uh, happening between police officers and uh, black males. They they were the first conversation we had about it. And I've had many conversations this week with friends and, and other acquaintances regarding The Wire and how if you had watched The Wire, you, you pretty much saw Baltimore coming years ago. Well, at the gathering, uh, Stephen often talks about uh, when he watched The Wire, he had seen some people in predicaments that he didn't know if that was a real-life situation, how a script could even be written to get them out of that situation. And he says seeing these things happen reminded him of that show. Uh, people have often said that if black people, black youth, black men, and we know that this happens to black women also, if they would just do what the police say, that none of this would happen. They would sometimes say, well, if you if you didn't do nothing, the police wouldn't bother you in the first place. And what's come out with this story is that there was a man Freddie Gray, walking, basically minding his own business, and then the police initiated contact with him. With a, and he, what his only crime was daring to look a police officer in the eye, making eye contact with the officer. After 22 arrests with the, by the Baltimore Police Department, you tell me, is that not uh, – Freddie Gray had 22 uh, prior arrests. Is that not enough interaction with a, with a, with a group to probably make you a little nervous about them? Uh, just, you know, logic would dictate that. 
here's a gentleman who at that particular time was doing nothing wrong, had done nothing wrong. Contact was initiated by the police. It's alleged that he ran. People say, well, once he ran, that gave police reason because why are you running? And I think about the days that I'm out jogging or my version of it, walking as fast as I can is usually what it is. And I was like, so does that, does that mean that now they have probable cause? But then let's take it a step further. During his search, they found the knife. Now, the knife. Not a switchblade, as previously reported, a knife. And it was a knife that was in regulations. We are allowed to carry knives in our pocket. That's one reason why they call them pocket knives. As long as it doesn't exceed a certain length, you have to check your local jurisdiction to know what that is. Well, he had a knife in his pocket that didn't exceed that local jurisdiction. So what should have been a, at most, hey, we see a guy that we know that has been involved or allegedly has been involved in something in the past. We initiated contact. He ran, which gave us further suspicion. We pursued upon searching him. We found that there was nothing of an illegal nature. He was involved in nothing illegal. In my mind, what should have happened was an apology and sending him on his way. Mm -hmm. But what instead happened was him being brutalized on the ground by multiple police officers while a supervising police officer is in the area and then arrested and put in a police van unrestrained in what seems to be he's in anguish. We heard Eric Garner, New York, saying, I can't breathe. And we had the I can't breathe movement. Here it is. It's as if the police officers learned nothing from that. And we have another individual who has been brutalized on the ground, being dragged into a police van, and Angela, one of the things I kept asking myself was, what was he charged with? What had he done? I'd never seen anything. And now we find out that he, there was no charge. He was yep. arrested for air. So when people say, well, all black people have to do is stop committing crime, he committed no crime. As a matter of fact, after the search, had nothing. But instead of letting him go, they put him in the van. And here's the thing, or another thing. He was in pain, and if you look at the position of his legs, I can't say for sure that there was had to be a medical problem with his legs or spine at that moment. Yep. But there was something about it that looked suspicious. That did now, not look right. Him, though, you knew that he his, was not in under his own. I will just say this. Young black males have a thing with their tennis shoes. They're not going to scuff them. They're not going to mess them up. They're certainly not going to drag them across the ground in that fashion. And that's just real. I was, I, I, I have young African-American males in my life. They're very serious about their tennis shoes. And you're right. There's just something about the lifelessness 
uh, of Freddie Gray's lower body that tells you uh, uh, beyond the ex- the 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 screaming, the literal screaming, I'm hurt, I'm hurt, I need help, help me. Beyond that, the way that young man's legs are dragging, and the way that his tennis shoes are being dragged across the ground like that. And I hate to, you know, take it down to something, you know, inanimate like a pair of tennis shoes, but I just know young men today, they're very serious about their appearance and their tennis shoes, and there is something uh, very clear. That's why I never understood, well, I understood, but CNN and MSNBC were both pushing this narrative that he was hurting the truck. And I'm like, that's not possible. Even with the the rough riding, whatever happened to Freddie Gray happened to him before he was placed in that truck. Well, I, it, it is obvious that something happened to him before he got into the van. Uh, but because of what happened to him before getting in, could have contributed to what happened to him once he was in. So the culpability of the police didn't go away. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't there seem to be some type of cover-up or there wasn't full information released on how many stops that they had made? Uh, there was something about that. Why would you have to hide how many stops that you made? And here's another one. When he got into the vehicle, you could hear him exclaiming loudly. But when the medical uh, team finally got to him, his larynx, his voice box, had been crushed. Now, I'm thinking that was, even though they were saying he, these were self-inflicted, how did his voice box How do you get, crush your voice box? How do you fracture, how do you sever your spine 80% yourself? 80% severed spine. Uh a three crushed vertebrates in this young man's neck. Uh, that's a lot of force to inflict upon yourself. No, I, I, I just don't believe it. Now, luckily, I almost right after the, they broke this story, I think it was the Washington Post that broke this story about him allegedly uh, harming himself and k- killing yeah. himself. Uh, there was another reporter that came on that basically said that was a bunch of bovine defecation. Yes, and because that, she had interviewed the young man who was in the truck on the other half of the truck. So, you know, you got to understand how the, the paddy wagon has a metal wall down the middle of it and it's divided in half uh, because of that partition. And what happened with the post is that they misinterpreted and and then this spoke to how much they really don't understand our communication style um I, I to me it seemed like you know cherry picking the reporter that did that story for the post probably did a little cherry picking and took it you know in its literal sense the young man was saying I thought you know, whoever was on the other side may have been banging their head up against the wall, but I only heard about three or four 
stumps, but in hindsight, you know, they didn't put the rest of the comment in there, and I'm paraphrasing what the young man said. In hindsight, I now realize that, you know, he was over there and he was hurt. He he was already hurt. He he was already hurt. Well, I, they did play another interview with the the young man who, in that interview, basically didn't say any of the stuff that they that the post said he that said. it was reported mm-hmm. that he had said, and he came out and this is what I said. And you know, when we think about news outlets, and don't we complain about them? Maybe rightfully so, but I do believe we have to do more than complain because maybe we need to have our own. And ah, if we had our now own, let's talk about were, that. Yes, please go ahead. If we had our own, maybe some of these maybe some of these reports would be more accurate to the facts of the matter versus the speculation. Now, when I heard the report come out, because almost immediately afterwards it, it was refuted, because the lady said, "Wait a minute, the the timeline does not match." Does not make sense. This, yeah, this other gentleman didn't get in the van until such and such a point. Uh, and she says, according to reports from police statements themselves, they had already checked on Freddie Gray, and he was unresponsive. So if he was unresponsive before this other gentleman got into the vehicle, then how, how could he have been banging his head up against the wall? And when the young man gave his the, the video I saw, his comments, his testimony was as if what you would expect of someone who might be unrestrained and incapacitated mm-hmm. in a vehicle that's moving, hitting however many potholes that there may or may not be in the road, bouncing around. So for them to suggest, and, and what got me about CNN as well as another station, I, I believe it was MSNBC, was how much they kept playing it over and over again that this other account has leaked out. Well, of course the cops, or someone, I don't know if it was the cops, of course someone would leak something out like that to make it seem like this man killed himself so the cops had no uh, or not, no involvement. But the problem, is, right. this, the problem was the story was refuted the night that it came out, but the next day, you would think that no one had proof that the story was wrong because the mass media, the popular media, kept saying this report has come out, already knew that the report was inaccurate. Was inaccurate, absolutely. You know, I I, uh, called into Thomas Berry's show uh, earlier this week, and I was talking on, on on, on his show on the rent, uh, about how I was initially watching this story. I had on mainstream media on my television, but on my two devices, my phone and my my tablet, I had various live streaming uh and Twitter. I had Twitter, live stream and uh new and Twitter's new live streaming app called Periscope. I had them all going and I had the mainstream news going. And 
I tell you, it was the tale of two cities, Rodney. The stuff I was getting on live stream ended up coming up factual a couple of days later on mainstream television. So uh, news outlets have to, uh, you know, one of the principles of journalism is to not insert yourself into the story. With this 24-hour news cycle uh, platform, we've gotten a steady diet of folks masquerading themselves as journalists, but really they're opinionists. They're 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 uh, commentary uh, folks, and they regularly insert themselves into the story, and you know. That's okay, that's, you know, cool on certain things, but there are some tenements of journalism that I feel we need to start requiring of these outlets. We're no longer going to turn you on and just let you tell us what you think we ought to know about the video or the news story. Uh, With this Baltimore coverage, it's just been very interesting to watch um, people in an effort to give the other side, because that's another tenement of journalism, give both sides of the story. You're there to report a story, but you got to report both sides. Um, But it it often comes out as heavy-handed and one-sided and basically fudging the facts to fit your personal belief system. Ashley Banfield, I I, I highlighted her before. Uh, Also, Aaron, what's Aaron's last name on um, CNN? Two uh, women also uh, overnight the correspondents that are from the UK, very interesting ways and and just the verbiage in which they use, the adjectives, how they describe things and, you know, the beating of a particular narrative. Narratives has been a lesson, I think, for all of us on you know, right and wrong ways to cover things. Do you do do you want the story or do you want their story? Is what it comes down to. Well, one of the reasons why I, I posted the link on the Our Own Voices Live Facebook page of the interview of uh, the man who was uh, who gave the testimony, and so you all can go there and you can hear what he says. And, you know, you can see him as he's telling it. And feel free to give us a call at area code 347-826-9600, 347-826-9600, and share your thoughts of what you see him saying and what he's saying. And then ask yourself, how did what he's saying now, how was it made into what the report was? But, okay, let's benefit out of doubt. They misinterpreted but it, the story was almost immediately refuted, 
with facts, with the timeline, and some with other things. Video, with video, with with a timeline, uh, a digital timeline reenactment, with eyewitness testimony. I, I don't think you've ever seen to this level a a uh, a network narrative being broke down so. Uh, immediately and so thoroughly, uh, three different ways of saying no, you got the story wrong, and then they had to report it. That was the other kind of funny point to me. They built, they spent all of this time building this narrative and pushing this point, and just when they thought they had flicked the switch all the way on, they had to <laughs> go back and be refuted by video, by eyewitness, by a digital reenactment of the timeline, and then finally the total cherry on top was uh, Miss Marilyn Mosby coming and putting the final uh, narrative together for everyone yesterday. Uh, and her statements just was a glowing uh, neon sign of how wrong we've been. So many outlets had been getting it all week. Hundred well, days in office, and um, for, comes from five generations of law enforcement. Four uncles and a, a mother and a father. Could you imagine dating her, Rodney? <laughs> that young oh, man had to go through something. And, oh, yes, and her grandfather being one of the first black officers in in Massachusetts. That was a, I'm sure that was a tough family to, you know, you better be right when you're coming over to the Mos, Mos, uh, Mosby household. That's for sure. Um, but 100 days in office. I also wanted to say that I've, I've found it very interesting that uh, it's so many young African-American women that are at the forefront of uh, decision-making uh, and, and um, management of this narrative. You have the mayor, 35 years old. You have the, the, the state's attorney. She's in her 30s. She's the youngest uh, prosecutor in the country, the youngest. I you know I I don't know. You have uh Miss Dixon, the former mayor who has taken a leadership role in this and you know <clears throat> Jamal Bryant, Pastor Jamal Bryant has kind of been at the forefront of this uh Black Lives Matter campaign. So it it's kind of interesting that this all comes to a head, you know, a, a very interesting chapter in this um, civil rights uh, journey in his city that his city uh, specifically would have a chapter in this new civil rights uh, uh, narrative but it only makes sense it's a city with 2,000 churches it is the home of the NAACP the, the you know that's where it was founded, and that's where it still resides in the city of Baltimore. So, it, you know, you're like, wow, 
it all it, it's it's all kind of coming for full circle here and for the black people of Baltimore to one thing that I think all of us uh, African Americans that you know have a great way of carrying ourselves and speaking one thing we can't stand to hear is oh you're so articulate but I think I've heard that so much this week it, I was like wow this is this is really something uh, they really have shown themselves they being the mainstream media they've really shown themselves to have a certain level of expectation of black people um especially where certain members are concerned uh they have their own narrative going on about us and they really have no idea they really have no idea uh it's clear they had their own ideas about how we were to speak and how we were to carry ourselves. They never expected all the brooms to come out the day after the riots. Tuesday morning, there were individuals from that community that live in that community out there with their garbage bags and uh, brooms and, you know, whatever they could bring to clean up their community. They were there before the cameras got there. They were there 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. Um, Witnesses were saying that they were out at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, uh, community members cleaning up their community. And that's just something that has turned their narrative of our community on its ear. Well, I want to go back to... I want to go back to the uh, to the arrest. This uh, sure. I'm, I'm in the uh, Facebook uh, page, and there's someone I, I posted a picture of them dragging them to the uh, vehicle, the van, and I posted this dragging Freddie Gray to the van. Blurry. Yes, but the reason why I posted that particular picture was you can see his leg bent at an angle that is not natural. Yep. You can also see him being almost fully supported by police officers. By the officers, yes. And this goes into another narrative of blacks and pink. Whether it's Eric Garner saying that he can't breathe, whether it's documented uh, cases of blacks in the hospital receiving less pain medication because they're assumed to have this greater tolerance to pain. People often talk about various things, but I say that nothing will change unless it's a revolution of the mind, unless we somehow can get ourselves to think about us differently, but also put some things in place so that other people will think about us differently. In both cases, Eric Garner, and now with Fred, uh, Freddie Gray, they were very slow to render aid. If you go back to, I believe it's Mr. Scott in South Carolina, when he was shot by Officer Slager for running after a traffic stop, shot shot at, I believe it was eight times, 
connected five of the uh, eight, that once he was down, and even after putting the cuffs on him, still did not render aid. If you look at what happened with Tamir Rice, I believe he was a 12-year-old in Ohio, police officers drove up, basically did a drive-by, shot him, called it in, but still did not render aid. This is, yes, it is a training thing. It is a procedures thing that needs to be addressed, but we need to also get down to the root cause of why these police officers don't render aid. This needs to be addressed, and this goes also back to the folks who say, well, you know, we, we, the police did this or that because they were fearful of them and all those other things. Okay, now you have incapacitated the individual. They're down. They obviously have been shot, but yet you don't render aid. When, they're, when they are survived you, and they're telling you, you do not render aid. That is something that has to be addressed. I absolutely agree. And this is, you know, instead of the, you know, the police union, they have to do what they have to do to protect their, um, their enrollees, their their folks in their union. But I also think that uh, the union could utilize this and make this a teachable moment to educate the public on things of that nature and um, to do what they really need to do, some real community outreach and begin the business of repairing the relationship between the black community and and, um, officers that are policing us instead of serving and protecting us. Well, they have to first want to do it, and that has to be instilled on them. This is a case of many things, but it's also a case of a lack of leadership, and Mm -hmm. this is a black-led police department. Three Uh, of the officers arrested are African-American, three African-American, three white. Now, this goes into the narrative that some says it doesn't make any difference if you have more uh, black officers on the force. Now, I actually uh, disagree with that, which leads me into the other thought. You were talking about the uh, city attorney. When Eric Garner uh, was killed in New York, there was a call for an independent slash special prosecutor. And one of the big takeaways from that was that when these things happen, that should be one of the first orders of business. Now, in this particular case, we have, as you mentioned, a young prosecutor, and there's no real call or the call for removing her and then having an independent prosecutor, a special prosecutor, this time is actually coming from the police union. Now, she has said she sees no reason to be removed. And there's, to a, to a certain extent, I agree with that. But then on, on the other hand, I also see this, though. Is, is this a across-the-board blanket thing to 
need the removal and the installation of a special prosecutor? Or is it it, it case by case or is it blanket? Because I thought what we were pushing for in New York and one of the big wins was for them to acknowledge that it should go to a special independent prosecutor. Here in Baltimore, she says, no, she's going to, to do it. So as far as cohesion and unity amongst the many voices in the community, should it be an automatic special or independent prosecutor? Should it be case by case? Who will make that determination? And how will that impact future cases? So that's one that I don't have the question to right now, but I do think that it is deserving of a discussion and conversation because normally it's the police unions who are saying, no, nah, the one that we have is good. This time they're saying, no, the one that we have is not good. And then on, on top of that, people have expressed that black people shouldn't be in the police force. Black people shouldn't be in the position that this woman is in because it works for the government and the government is the oppressor and the enemy. Well, in this case, it appears that we have a champion on our side, not someone necessarily that will taint the case for us, but someone that will actually do the real job of justice. Well, suppose she was not there and it was someone of a different persuasion. Would we then say the reason why it happened is because we didn't have one of ours there? I guess my question is, as a people, as we talk about these things, do we need to have a unified stance on what should be and what isn't? And is there a benefit to having people in high positions so that they can see things of our perception or not. I think that's a community. That's a question conversation internal to our community. Um, I agree. I also think that there are a lot of big conversations, internal conversations that um, the Black Lives Matter um, and the Black Lives Matter, the Dream Defenders and you know, some of the other um, new uh, civil rights activists are highlighting that we should have as a closed community. A couple of conversations that we're going to have to have. What do, they mean? what do they mean by a closed community? What does, what does that mean? Uh, just amongst the members of that community. Uh, so you're talking about discuss. Uh, I just want to make sure I'm tracking. You're talking about discussions. Yes. Okay, gotcha. Uh, I do believe that we need to have some, and I do believe that we need to uh, establish some standards because when you're wishy-washy, people tend to turn you off and not pay you attention. Uh, it also means that how how should a person respond, and how should a community respond, whether it's us or the community at large. So I do believe in that we need to have that discussion. Angela, one of the things that I wanted to talk about, and we're, you know what, we're we're at 206, and we, there's a bunch of things that I, I wanted to address. You want to listen to Our Own Voices Live. Our Own Voices Live comes to you every Saturday at 12.30 p.m. Uh, that would be 3.30 for our East Coast listeners. Thank you, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. 
our topic today, we talked earlier about uh, and recap the second annual Las Vegas Black Film Festival. And now we're talking about what really was in the news and dominated uh, national news was Freddie Gray, the unrest in Baltimore. I also want to talk about the mom uh, and her son. Um, so we and, and we'll get to that uh, shortly. But I wanted to talk about something that uh, at the gathering yesterday we actually had residents from Baltimore, and they actually lived right around the corner where the unrest happened. And this is what, and a second information, because they're here in Vegas now, okay. but they did call back home. Okay. And they talked to their family. Somebody else. And they said oh. that the protest started peacefully, as we heard about the protest in uh, Ferguson, started peacefully. And what this uh, these folks reported to us yesterday at the gathering, of course, this is from them telling us after talking to their relatives back in Baltimore that live right around the corner from where the, the unrest happened, is they said that there were young people and others out protesting peacefully, and then people showed up with black masks and hoods on who began to do things in a violent manner hurl rocks and instigated the destruction of property. We heard that in so now, and we even heard that on other news reports too. We heard that in Baltimore recently, we heard it in Ferguson, and we've heard it in other places. What I want to do, and I hope I can be able to get back with you all next week, is I want to find the police who have been arrested if this is public knowledge and find out how many of those people who were arrested, one, actually weren't from those areas. So in Ferguson, how many people were arrested who weren't from Ferguson? From Baltimore, how many people, they said there was about 255 people arrested at last count I've seen. How many of those people weren't from Baltimore? And this is the reason why I think this is important, because these things start, start out peacefully, as we have peaceful protests here in Las Vegas, we've been a part of orchestrating some of them. And I do recall distinctly at one that we had some people who came to the organizing meeting whose sole purpose was to antagonize the police. And they even voiced things that they were going to do in that effort. Now, ultimately, those people were not allowed to participate in our protest and even went so far as to tell all of our people who were going to be involved in the protest not to wear any hood or mask. It was a righteous and peaceful protest, and there was no reason to hide our faces. This way, the people... If these people did try to infiltrate our ranks, they would be easy for us to spot, and then we could uh, police them ourselves, and if not, we could actually bring about law enforcement to police them for us. And we wanted to make it perfectly clear with law enforcement that we would not wear hoods and that this was a peaceful 
uh, protest, peaceful march, uh-huh. peaceful rally. Now, one of the things that we know is anarchists have been involved in many of these protests. There's even pictures of folks who people, when they saw them, say, I don't know who that is. Now, one of the narratives have been, are these plants by the police? Maybe. Maybe don't know that. But just suppose, just suppose, and I'm going to put this out there, this will be Rodney's conspiracy theory for today. Just suppose there are people with a nefarious nature who see where there's a potential powder cake, mm-hmm. and they go there with the intent of instigating the match, being the match to light the fire of that powder cake. And then once that match is lit, that they go in and loot and maybe even start fires to cover their tracks, and then they go and get what they came to get, which is confusion and money. And then they leave. And because of the group con- dynamic, The community is left to recover. Because of group dynamic, people who are in the peaceful protest see these things happen. And then they jump in because that's how the group thing works, Right. They jump in, and they're sort of left holding the bag. One, these people are not from that community, and they leave. They, they, They strike quick, and then they leave the area. So when the police finally do come in, all that's left is us. Now, that's why even looking at the police reports might be a little difficult to determine or to validate my little conspiracy theory here. But... As people know, it's always easy to blame it on the black man. And it's people easily accept it that those are those unruly black people. They're all, we know they're already violent. Look at them destroying their own communities. Well, yes, there is participation in that. Let's say that the, bless you, let's say that the mat for that destruction actually had nothing to do with our people but it was outside provocateurs for their own gain, financially and otherwise. And also, I thought about this and I said, how do these people, how can they afford to travel from place to place because they're always there? Well, maybe one of the ways they can afford to do it is from the loot that they got from the last one and that this is more of a criminal Empire and provocateurs than it is of our people because what people in their right mind, and maybe they're not, would intentionally go out to destroy their own community. That would be like, and that would be like me slapping you in the face and you go and slap yourself back to get at me. That is not (laughs) normal. And then say that, oh, I got Rodney back. That is not normal. And I want to take that to another level is because so many folks may be making an assumption. They could be right. I don't know that. But make the assumption that, oh, well, that's just a violence in our people erupting and it's righteous that they have this violence and destroy their own community. Suppose this is just a huge 
set up to easily blame the black people and, as so many other cases, use us as a tool and a cover for their own nefarious activity. And then, unfortunately, so many of our people jump on the bandwagon and say that it was righteous and justified. Going simply by the report of these folks, and then I heard it in Ferguson, too, and I've heard it from other protests, that, wait a minute, those people, those are not our community people. You heard reports of people saying, well, I have to live in this community. Why would I want to destroy my own community? That wasn't us. Are we listening to them when they say that that wasn't us? Because maybe it really isn't that. Another reason why in organizing these things, we -hmm. need to, maybe this is one of the things as we did here, we put in procedures to separate ourselves from these unidentified people with masks and and, uh, uh, black um, hoods on. Go ahead, Angie. We absolutely, you know, have to understand that the dynamics of the of of the of the attacks, even in the civil rights era, were multi-tiered. Even in the civil rights area, you had folks that infiltrated the inner sanctum of our organizations. NAACP, SNCC, all of them had individuals that came into the, that were allowed into the interior and ended up doing other things that that cost the uh, membership, the individuals that made up the membership dearly. Um, Ultimately, some paid with their lives uh, for things that had been done via infiltrators. So, you know, we have to look at history, as Sam would say, and, you know, understand it so that we are not doomed to repeat it and understand that there's nothing new under the sun, for real. Um, I think history dictates a lot of the things you just highlighted. So I don't know why we're – you know, I one of the things – that isn't really being talked about is the nature of PC, political correctness. And to me, part of the nature of being politically correct is um, taking things that have a history and have have plausibility and have a, a history of of that plausibility being implemented, like what you just highlighted, that there's history to that. There are people pushing up daisies, as my grandmother would say, that they fell victim to circumstances similar to what you just laid out. Yet we we use terms like conspiracy theory. You know, that's all a part of that PC um that pc philosophy that we our generation is falling uh to me victim to we are so busy trying to be nice to one another that we are not willing to look at some truths some heart we're not willing to look at anything uh outside the rose colored glasses and we're not willing to consider anything um that could be 
harmful for fear that we're going to be outside the group dynamic and, you know, maybe we might hurt a few people's feelings. God forbid we step on any toes. But we are going to have to have, uh, we're going to have to revisit history so that we can continue to move forward and make history. Baltimore made history at several junctures. One of notable uh, instances, and I don't feel that the uh, new activists took full advantage of this, we shut down net, uh, the, the, the baseball league. We shut that down. That's a billion-dollar industry that because we were not having it in Baltimore, we had six days of peaceful protests, but that one day, Monday, where things went uh, awry, um, that shut down national the National Baseball League for the first time in 150 years, 150-plus years. There were no fans in the stands. How come there was not one group in front of that stadium when the owner, and, I, you know, I don't know if you, you had an opportunity to, to check out some of the um, statements that the um, the team owner had to say out front that day. He, You know, he was very nervous and saying, you know, I, I want to – help and and I want to fix things but never once did he offer up any jobs never once but I bet if we had come in mass in front of that baseball stadium uh while the 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 Chicago Black Sox and the um Baltimore Orioles, or Orioles is it? Were playing. Could have made a another significant statement. So you know, in an effort to be PC, we're maybe not paying enough attention to the things that we need to to highlight, and maybe we should. Start by not calling something that has a precedent, it has a history. Maybe it's not a conspiracy theory, Rodney, or maybe I need to stop saying maybe. It's not a conspiracy theory, what you just put out there. There is precedent and there is history. Well, I did want to make sure that I got that out there today. Sure. So, so often we, we hitch our uh, cards onto the wrong horse. And, you know, we saw major strides happen in New York, and they were basically all peaceful protests. And when there were some people who tried to get out of hand, they had organized so well that it didn't happen. Now, in Baltimore, it seemed to have started with young people who were let out of school early, who then may, I believe, whose ranks were infiltrated by outside provocateurs for their own gain, and then used an opportunity to initiate violence. Now, we do know that there was some uh, racial epithets used by people as some of these young folks were out. But again, do we know where that came from? 
And who was it that, you know, it's one thing if a person calls me a name, but does that name automatically equate to me deciding I want to loot the CBS, that I want to burn it, that I want to steal iPhones, that I want to take sneakers? I mean, are we that simple-minded as a people? I just believe that there's a little bit more. Now, I, do, I will say that once these things start to happen, group dynamics, are in place, but how much would it take for someone to understand group dynamics, a little bit of sociology and psychology, and put this to play for their own financial gain and their own political gains of anarchy and or criminal enterprise of, hey, let's, we'll snatch and grab, and then we'll leave once it gets started in the confusion. Mm -hmm. And then these black people will continue, and, of course, they'll be seen as black people are always seen, and we're long gone. Because where are those people with the hoods now? That the peaceful protests are taking place, that the, the community leaders have gotten engaged and sort of gotten the upper hand and taken back the streets. Where are those masks now? Where are those masked individuals? Now, Angela, I did want to go, speaking of mass individuals, this leads into the next topic. There was a woman who saw her son with a mask on and who went and got her son. I did lay some corporal punishment down in the process and pulled her son out of the protest area and basically made him go home. Now, there are some who has labeled this woman a villain and an agent of white supremacy, and there are some who have labeled her a hero and asked the question of where were the other mothers. In the same vein, there were people who said a man should have done that. So I asked the question, where were the men? And if the men for whatever reason, weren't available or didn't do it, isn't that child that mother's responsibility? Some people say, well, the boy was just standing there. She, the mother said she'd seen him with the rock and maybe had thrown one already. The mother was on television and did an interview, and one of the things that was said was, I didn't want my son to be another Freddie Gray. And... We had a lengthy discussion discussion at the gathering yesterday, and people took, you know, it was kind of split down the middle. Now, most people didn't have a problem with her going to get her son. A couple thought maybe she should have left him. But there, for sure, the people who had a problem with her getting her son, the biggest issue seemed to be her hitting her son. I asked the question of has anyone else that, you know, that were saying this, had they ever hit their children? And most of them had said yes, but they said that as they had matured and learned that they no longer uh, use corporal punishment on their children. And I, so I asked the question back, well, if you did it at one point, learned and stopped, but now you're condemning this woman who has done the same thing that you've done, maybe she hasn't reached that level of maturity yet that you have. Maybe it just isn't her time. Or maybe, or maybe of this, she believes in corporal punishment, 
Or maybe she believes in corporal punishment, and that's what she administered to her minor child with an open hand, and, it, you know, it wasn't abusive to me. Well, and I said, who is it to say? And can we at least agree that this mother instinctively went to get her child, who she had told the night before not to Don't get involved, who disobeyed her, and then saw him with a rock about to potentially commit a crime? Is she wrong for doing that, or are we condemning her for or striking she be her wrong? Child? Or would she be wrong if she did nothing and her son ended up incarcerated? You know, I posted the video on my personal page, and my leading line was, they will not have, no one will have any money to put on your son's books. So... If we are not going to be the architects of determining what's right and wrong for our children, who 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 will? Because I promise you, everybody else that makes up the community of the United States of America is about the business of telling uh, their children their beliefs about right and wrong and administering whatever pressures and tactics that they have to to ensure that their children understand and follow through with the belief system that they're teaching their children um, regarding right and wrong, good people, bad people, all of this stuff is being taught uh, by us and by others. And if a parent cannot determine what is going to happen with their child, uh, I don't know who will. Well, some people had said that it was reinforcing the beatings that the masters gave to this place. And yeah, I heard that, Meredith, and I, I'm like, you know, sometimes we can be so heavenly bound that we are no earthly good. I don't think this has a thing to do with slavery. Um, I think that that was a mother in the heat of the moment doing putting everything on the line and doing what she had to do to literally smack her child into um, consciousness, the consciousness of what she says she meant, first of all, and secondly, I don't believe this is the right thing to do, and I forbid you, as long as you are a minor child, under my under my supervision to do this. There are rules in place for a reason. A society without rules is chaos, isn't it, Rodney? I don't think it would be 
society, or at least not civil society. Anyways. It wouldn't be not civil society if we didn't have thing. some. Absolutely, if we didn't have some rules in place to uh, make this thing approachable for everybody. This thing being life, existence in in civilized society. We didn't have rules in place, and the fact that you got rules in place means that if a rule is broken, there's a consequence for that. There will be a price paid for not obeying the rules that are general rules for everybody to obey. Now, <clears throat> I thought it was interesting that people... Uh, opinion, opinions went to slavery, but they did not go to um, how to teach our children of uh, civil disobedience and how to do it and, and when to do it. I thought it was. I think it's a teachable moment. The the, the video is a teachable moment on on so many levels. Um, when you and I talked about it earlier this week, I think I described it to you as this is the this is the visual uh, this is a visual example of the struggle that black mothers have been going through raising black sons in America forever. There's always been that pull that 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 ebb and flow that push and pull between um, black mothers and black sons trying to make sure that they understand that you don't want them in the streets. You don't want them taken by violence. uh, And and you don't want them affected by prejudice. You don't have to um, let your anger allow you to live up to some stereotypes that a lot of people have about you as a black man. There are other ways to go about it. I I that's what I think. That's that was my original thought on uh seeing uh the mom handle her son and I I was one of the few that saw it. Well, I guess millions, it wasn't few, but a few uh as far as people that I talked to that actually saw that happen on TV when it was happening. Um, It was one of those moments in watching television where you're like, holy smokes, this is real talk right here. It don't get no realer than this right here. It's a very real raw moment, and I think it has so many layers to it uh, as far as what we as black women, whether you are single or married, with children or without children, we all have black males in our lives that we love and care about. And if we ever saw them out there in the street doing something that would ultimately contribute to something destructive in their lives, I don't know. I, that I have a black female friend that wouldn't intervene, probably in much the same manner that that young sister intervened with her son. And I, I tell you, um, it is true. 
it is all truth that no one if your if your son or daughter finds themselves in some trouble and becomes property of the state via incarceration becoming a part of this school to prison pipeline there is nobody that is going to hurt more than you the mother that gave birth to that individual and from the day of their conception and birth you have spent every waking moment worrying about them praying for them uh pushing pulling uh celebrating um overcoming teaching every single thing you can uh to help that young man reach his fullest potential to me well she 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 did what she had to do there was a uh, they interviewed the mother who went out to get her son and right uh, right after or as a part of that interview they had the lady on who has an organization called Mothers of Incarcerated Sons Society. Hmm. And what, what she talked about was what it's like to be a mother, a single mother, single parent mother, of a son who's incarcerated. And how maybe the mom didn't have to uh, resort to corporal punishment but she said it was in the moment. And then she went on to say, there are many of us who wish that if we could have that moment when our child was getting, I'm paraphrasing now, that moment when our child was about to do what led him for me to be in this secret, little secret society, this unique society. I call it the secret, it's, it's a secret sister sorority of mothers of incarcerated children in this nation, how do we think that we could be the leading free nation of with the largest incarcerated population and not have a nation of mothers here hurting, hurting? It, the incarceration is not just affecting that individual that's behind bars. It's affecting every member of their family. Especially the women Especially Super especially Double scoop Especially the mother Who gets the blame Rodney When we see something crazy on the news The first thing we say is wow Where was that child's mother Where was that child's Never the parents Never where was that child's father We lay that square at the mom's doorstep all the time. That's regular, general quotes and conversation. So who am I to say that that sister wasn't supposed to go upside her son's head? I agree with that mother that's the head of that organization to be a voice for a voiceless group of women with children who are properties of the state. 
And so often we look at the news and we look at the crimes committed in our community and we say, oh, God, lock them up and throw away the key. Well, when you say that, just know that that comes at a cost, a high cost to the whole community. It really impacts the whole community, but it especially deals with the wellness of a family to have a missing member of their family. And sure, I believe in if you did, you know, if you did something wrong, you you have to, you know, there are rules in society. But I also know in enforcing those rules, there are heavy labor pains with that, that a family has to deal with. And, you know, it contributes to so many other ills in our in our society, uh, just trying to get through the trauma of being a part of that sister, that secret sister sorority. Uh, it, it is real, it exists, and we don't have many platforms that allow, or, or many instances in in mainstream news cycle that allowed those families to have a voice? Well, the organization, once again, is called Mothers of Incarcerated Sons. Mothers of Incarcerated Sons. And uh, when you hear the passion that the founder of this organization speaks about the mother who went to get her son and how so many mothers wish they had an opportunity to have gotten their son. And Angela mentioned a phrase that I typically don't use or even think of in this case, but it really is apropos. And, and Angela, I believe you said owned, what was it you said, owned the child or something to that effect? I'm sorry, say it again. You, you mentioned turning the child over to the state where the state, I believe you said, owns the child or something. To that yes, effect. when your child becomes the property of a state, property of a whatever state, state um, the crime was perpetrated in, uh, there are millions. We are, we are the largest incarcerator in the free world. So that means that we are the largest sorority in the free world of mothers of incarcerated children. Hmm. Own the property of the state. I had said during the unrest that some people call a riot, some people call an uprising. I, I believe it was provocateurs who caused it. 200 and I believe 35 people arrested. Some of them will become the property of Baltimore. They are the property of the state. If they have been arrested and they haven't posted bail, they are guests. They are property of the state of Massachusetts now. And due process is going to have to take place. But until then, they languish and their families languish while they're behind bars. So I think that we should look at these things 
maybe a little more critically because who knows what they will do if they saw their child in harm's way. We've heard stories of women picking cars up, and that wasn't their normal occupation of lifting cars in the air. So we know that in times of great danger and adrenaline is pumping, people react, they respond. It may not always be the best response, but for that child, it got him out of harm's way. And uh, I know that this is a discussion, maybe even a debate that will continue about it. But let me, here's a thought that I want people to consider, because we talk about it when we talk about Angela's hometown of Chicago. I mentioned Detroit, and it could be Baltimore as well. Suppose the mothers of those children who are out shooting each other and killing one another, or the fathers, or a combination of the two, aunts, uncles, siblings, brothers, sisters, or friends or family, were to go out and bring those students home. You know, there's uh, years ago, you could be service on television. And then you could come on right at and what that public service announcement used to say is it was very simple. And it said, it's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? That was We're it. showing our age now, Rodney. <laughs> but, it, I mean, that was it. It's it so true. PM. Do you know where your children are? Very we need powerful. those things back. So, parents, when it's 10 p.m., Ask yourself, do you know where your children are? And if you don't, if you don't have to work, or maybe you have a friend, a relative, that can go out and get your child and bring them out of harm's way to prevent them from killing someone and becoming property of the state or from being killed by someone who still will become property of the state. Something Well... This has been a very long show. A big shout-out once again to Sister China. We were going to talk about her trip to Africa, and she says, Brother, let's, let's postpone that because there's so much happening with Baltimore. That should be the topic. I can come on your show next week or some other time. Hopefully we'll bring Sister China onto the show next Saturday. She thought this was something important enough that we dedicate the show, and if I look at the clock, I see that not only have we gone over our usual 90-minute show, but we're about 45 minutes beyond that. We're over our over. minutes past <laughs> our two-hour show. Yes, we're over our over. So, uh, first of all, thanks to Angela Thomas for coming on. She always has such a full schedule for sharing uh, her thoughts, her, opinion, her opinions, her take and experiences on the situation. Uh, thanks to all of you for listening. I know it was a long show today. Uh, thanks for hanging in there with us. It was something of value to you. We will be back next Saturday at 12.30 p.m. on the West Coast. And 3.30 out east. Uh, Y'all stay peaceful and keep going. Live to listen to an archived version of the show. Uh, I know many of you are off to the fight and fight activities. Please be safe out there. And uh, let's also provide some serious consideration of what we do with our money and how it can positively impact our communities. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. Angela, take us out. 
Well, everyone, uh, this is Saturday. We've come to the end of our broadcast, and I want to thank you for tuning in, especially to this long one. I um, want to encourage everyone out east to stay strong and keep sending those positive images out across the world and showing them the varied layers and uh, complexity of our complexion. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next Saturday. Well, we'll talk to you. (laughs) Bye-bye.